And so let's welcome Dr. Carl Truman. It's always good to, the, uh, to remember that the students that, that one remembers are always the troublemakers. So to be forgotten by a professor is a great compliment, I think. I wonder if you would turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Jude. Uh, it's uh, towards the end of the Bible. It's uh, the, the penultimate book of the Bible, just before the book of Revelation. And I'm going to be speaking tonight on verses 24 to 25, but I want to start the reading from verse 17, just so we have a bit of context for, for what's going on here. So, Hear the word of the Lord. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. O oh Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, you who dwell in eternal light, you who are in yourself unapproachable by those of us who are not only finite mortals but sinful, we would call upon you now, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit you might open our eyes and our ears, you might open our hearts to receive the great truths that your word contains. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we meet today in your name, you would meet with us and you would press your gospel once again upon our hearts. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Probably if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you'll have at some point asked yourself or been asked the question, what is worship? Typically when one asks that question, you get answers uh, that refer to, to techniques, uh, styles of music, types of hymns, and these are legitimate concerns. Uh, we all have to worship in some way or other, with some kind of music or some selection of hymn. It may be that a non-Christian, if you're a non-Christian here tonight, you might ask the question, what is worship, in a more profound way. Because when you ask the question, you might not be asking about the, the peripheral things, the music, the hymns that are chosen, the style, you might be asking a deeper question. Why on earth do you get together and do what you do on a Sunday? And it's that that I want to reflect upon this evening. I think the great lesson of the doxology we've read is this, that both the foundation and the content 
of Christian worship are one and the same. Both the foundation and the content of worship are one and the same. Now, I've referred already to the, the, the Jude doxology. It's worth mentioning, I think, or just referring to begin with, what a doxology is. A doxology is a statement about God that is addressed to God and which ascribes great things to him. At the end of this service, we will have a benediction. Benediction is not a doxology. A benediction is a blessing coming from God to the people. You will be blessed by the minister, by God through the minister, at the end of this service. A doxology goes the other way. A doxology is a declaration of praise, or we might perhaps dare to say a blessing, directed from the people to God. And it's an important distinction. And it is beautifully summed up in the fifth of the so-called solas of the Reformation. This is a Reformation Day service. It's not quite Reformation Day, but it's as close as we can get. We're remembering the great insights of our fathers in the faith of the 16th century, and they had five slogans, or their thinking was summed up with five slogans. Faith alone, Scripture alone, uh, grace alone, Christ alone, and finally, and perhaps most gloriously of all, to the glory of God alone. That defines who we are and why we are here. And I want to explore the issue of doxology specifically through the Jew doxology, which I think captures beautifully for us what praise is to be. It comes at the end of the letter, as you see. Uh, it's a positive end to a letter that many people regard as being quite negative in, in much of its content. Jude begins his letter by saying that he wants to talk about a common salvation. If you look at verse 3, he says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to, uh, eager to write to you about our common salvation, Jude's primary motivation in writing this letter was first and foremost to talk about the common salvation that he shared with the people to whom he was writing. But something gets in the way. He says this, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we don't know the exact nature of the problem in the church to which Jude is writing. We don't know the church to which Jude was writing. But we can gather from the subsequent verses that there are problems there. there seems to be some sexual immorality connected to some false teaching. And though Jude wants to rejoice in the common salvation that he has with those to whom he writes... He feels that his first priority has to be to warn them and to urge them to contend earnestly for the faith. And then just before the doxology, having laid out the problems as he sees them in this church, he gives a series of calls to the church, of things that they are to do. He says they are to remember, verse 17, the words of the apostle. Uh, verse 21, he says they're to keep themselves in the love of God. Verse 20, he says they're to build one another up in their most holy faith. Verse 22, uh, he says, pray in the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And then those final sort of pastoral triptych 
Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. And have mercy even on those who are unrepentant. It's an interesting triptych, I think. There, are, I think he's got three kinds of people in mind. Have mercy on those who doubt. Those are, we might say, the young Christians who are genuinely struggling with aspects of the faith. And he's reminding them that in all of the tough stuff you've got to do with the false teachers, be gentle. Be gentle with those who really, because of their age and the faith, should know no better. And then he talks about those that are to be snatched from the fire. We might say these are those who are being led astray. They, they should know better, but they're not deeply wicked. They've been misled by influential people. He says, you know, snatch them from the fire. Don't, don't despise them. Don't write them off. Snatch them from the fire. And then that final category, have mercy even on those who are unrepentant. Even, he's saying, even the really wicked false teachers here. Act towards them in a way that's trying to win them back. Don't write them off. Don't trash them. I would say today, don't engage in some pointless Twitter war against them. Relate to them in a way that will bring them back to where they should be. And we read all that, and on one level, I think we would say, we would affirm all of those things from when he says, remember the words of the apostles to snatch them from the fire. We'd say, that's great stuff. But then a moment's reflection, I think, brings home to us that that's a tall order. That's back-breaking stuff. You've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got to do the other, and you've got to do it to this great standard where even the, the wicked leaders, men who probably damaged you, that you have every reason to have a grudge against, you've got to deal with them in a way that will win them back. That's a tall order. That's tough enough, I think, in a church when things are going reasonably well. That's backbreaking work at a moment when it's quite clear that not everything is going well in this church. All of these things they have to do. We might say, that may be good news, but it's kind of bad news, really. That's a whole heap of responsibility on people who probably aren't up to the job. And then we get the great doxology. The doxology isn't just Jude signing off his letter at this point. The doxology is Jude pointing to that good news that will actually give the people to whom he's writing the strength, the ability to do those things that he's asking of them. So let's look at this doxology then. What is the first element in this doxology verse 24 now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy first thing he does is focus on God and on God's power before I came to Grove City some years ago when I was teaching at the seminary when Daniel was there I think uh, I was vice president, I was an administrator and if you're an administrator in an organisation almost every day a problem comes up to which there isn't an obvious answer and I would meet with my assistant and, uh, and she would lay out for me the problem and the, the first question I would ask her would be well what are we able to do in this situation? Because an awful lot of time can be wasted talking about solutions that you're never going to be able to do anyway First thing we have to decide is, what's my power? What's my ability? What's my power in this situation? It's basic to life, isn't it? If you're going to buy a house or you're going to rent a car or go to the beach, first thing you're going to ask is, 
can we do it? Even before you ask, do we want to do it? You ask, well, can we do it? There's no point in me wanting to buy a, a 1.5 million mansion. I never afford it. There's no point in even trying to put plans together for that. What am I able to do financially? Well, here, of course, the first thing that Jude does is he starts talking about God's power. To him who is able. He's just given this list of things, and yes, I'm just not able to do that. I'm not able to do that. I found it hard enough to like my family. Let alone the kind of wicked people who are ruining the church. I'm not able. Well, it doesn't matter at one level. Because Jude now carries our minds away from our own lack of ability to him who is able. To him who is able to do what? Well, here he says, to him who is able uh, to keep you first, first of all, to keep you from stumbling. We all know what stumbling is. Stumbling is not looking where you're walking and then tripping up or even falling over. It's interesting, if you have time this week, maybe uh, uh, in a concordance or on your, your computer, type stumbling in and see how often it comes up in the Bible. It's often used in the Bible. Psalm 73, the psalmist. Now, the psalmist, the context is, he's, he's looking at the wealthy, wicked people around and wondering why they get away with it, while poor people get kicked in the teeth all the time. That's essentially what he's asking. And he says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's reminding himself of the goodness of God. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. As he looks around and he sees the, the suffering, good people suffering and bad people getting away with it, he almost stumbles. He almost doubts that God is good. He almost stumbles. Psalm 116, verse 8 and following. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. It's a common biblical image for, you know, falling off the right path. Something going wrong that throws everything else in your life into chaos that ruins everything. It's a common metaphor, we might say in the Bible, for a common danger that believers face. It's spoken powerfully, I think, in this context. Jude is writing to these people because there are false teachers there. And they might stumble. They might stumble by following the teaching that they shouldn't follow. And the church is littered with people, isn't it? Littered with the names of people who've stumbled at the last minute. My lasting memory of high school is not, not a good thing. Not my hour of greatest achievement. I played intramural rugby at school. I know it's not an American sport. You've got to bear with me. I know nothing about American sports. So all of my images come from three and a half thousand miles to the east. In rugby, I was a wing, a wing three-quarter. You know, rugby, they're the big guys who are the forwards, and they do the rough stuff. And then what we call the three-quarters. And the job of a wing three-quarter, he really has only one job. The ball gets to him, and he runs as fast as he can. He's to carry the ball as fast as he can down the field. We're right back on a sort of defensive touchline. We're in as bad a situation as we can be. And the ball comes flying out to me on the wing, and I catch it, and I take off. And I was pretty fast in those days. And I run the full length of the pitch. 
And as I cross the touchline on the other end of the pitch, I'm still pulling away from the other team that are pursuing me. There's one difference in rugby and American football, a number of differences, but one of the key ones is for a touchdown, you've got to touch the ball down. You don't just cross the line. I crossed the line and I stumbled and I dropped the ball. And the whistle blows and we're back to the 22-yard line. No score. It's the one thing I remember more than anything else about school. It would have been my greatest moment. And it was actually my moment's the biggest failure. I stumbled and it was all for nothing. The church is littered with the names of those who have destroyed years and years of faithful testimony because they stumbled and did something stupid. A former colleague, and I won't tell you what he did, but my, my, one of my sons said to me, you know, the problem with him now, Dad, is he will never be more than the punchline to a tasteless joke. What a verdict on somebody's Christian testimony. He stumbled and it was ruined. And that's what's so good about this, isn't it? To him who is able to keep you from what? From stumbling. There is no reason to stumble because you have a God who is able to keep you from stumbling. He's not a God who simply says to you, do not stumble, and then sends you off on your own. He's a God who is able to keep you from stumbling. He doesn't just give you the bad news of the command, do not stumble. He's able to keep you from stumbling as well. Secondly, and we might say, well, how does he do that? Well, I would say to you, it's not any mystical thing. God gives us numerous means by which we can be kept from stumbling. Being in church on a Sunday, singing God's praises, hearing the word preached. That's one of the means that God has given for keeping you from stumbling. Meeting with fellow believers on a Sunday to hear the word preached and to sing his praises. You might say, well, week by week, I, I can't remember the sermons. I don't remember the songs we sung. It's odd when you're a preacher. You don't remember many of the sermons you preached. I mean, that's weird. And I, that sounds like a funny, but it isn't. Every now and then somebody will say, well, what do you think of that passage? And I'll say, well, I preached on it two years ago. I'll need to go and look at my notes to remind myself of what I said. I, did, I went to a school and we, we learned Latin from the age of 11. Uh, I don't remember a single Latin lesson. But I can pick up a book of Latin and read Latin. I clearly learned it somewhere down the line. You may not be able to remember a single driving lesson you ever had, but you can drive a car. Think about it. Being in church is like that. It slowly but steadily transforms you slowly but steadily keeps you from stumbling. You're not kept from stumbling by your ability to remember lines from the sermon. You're kept from stumbling by grasping the Christ presented to you in sermon after sermon by faith. That's formal means. We might also say there are informal means of uh, keeping us from stumbling. Well, friendships. Christian friends, Christian company. And then, of course, there are the spiritual means. Christians are what? They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working within you. As you hear the word each week, that Holy Spirit transforming you, keeping you from stumbling. 
But there's a second uh, goal here. He's able not only to keep you from stumbling, he's also able to present you blameless before God. That's a note struck numerous times in the New Testament. Ephesians 1.4, Philippians 2.15, Revelation 14.5, all talk about believers being presented blameless before the Lord. But a moment's reflection brings home to us just how amazing that is, to be presented blameless before the Lord. We know that we aren't blameless. Even today, are all your thoughts blameless? All the words you've spoken, all the things you've done, are they blameless? Well, the news gets worse, of course, as it gets better in this passage. Present you blameless before the presence of His glory. You're going to be presented blameless not just before your brothers and sisters in church on a Sunday, before God Himself. If it's difficult enough sometimes to keep up appearance in front of our friends, what will it be like when we stand before God? What will it be like then? It'll be terrible. But no, it won't. Because God is able to present you blameless before his glory. How does he do that? Well, through sacrifice. Go back to the Old Testament. Think of the sacrificial animals in Leviticus. They're to be, we're told, without blemish. They're to be blameless. For sinful Israel to come before God without blemish, they must find a sacrificial animal without blemish. But what do we find in the New Testament? The Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, and our sacrifice, who is in all ways as we are, except without sin, blameless, without blemish. How can God present us blameless before him? Through Jesus Christ. God himself has done it. It's bad news. Oh gosh, I've got to appear blameless before God. How can I do that? I've got 51 years of not being blameless behind me by now. A few months time, we'll all probably be watching Christmas Carol on the TV. And remember when the ghost of Jacob Marley appears. And he's got all those chains of all the evil things he's done around him. And Scrooge says to him, that's terrible. And he points at Scrooge and he says, your chain was the same length as mine when I died seven years ago. It's seven years longer now. How can you appear blameless? Jesus Christ, God himself, has set forth his own son, the son whom he loved, the son who was without blemish, to be a sacrifice for us. We will be presented here, the language hints, as spotless sacrifices before God because God himself has been the spotless sacrifice in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing to note about this doxology is this. It's the foundation of praise. God himself and his actions are the foundation of this doxology. When we come to worship God, the thing that is the foundation for our worship the action of God is also to be the content of our worship. It was great, those songs we sang earlier on. Uh, he is able. That's exactly what's going on here. We're singing to God that he's able, reminding ourselves at the same time of what God is able of. 
Notice now we come to what, to, what, is, what else does he ascribe to God? To the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time now and forevermore. To the only God. This doxology draws clearly on the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. There is only one God. There are other things that human beings have invented and called them gods, but there is only one God. And to Him be glory at this point. To the only God, our Saviour. Notice that. To the only God, our Saviour. That's an interesting use of language in the New Testament. Because typically, when you talk about Saviour, it's usually Jesus Christ is the Saviour. But Jude knows his theology really well. Jesus Christ, it's not just Jesus who's Saviour, the whole God is Saviour, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes we can think about salvation as this, that God the Father is really angry with us, and the Son goes before him and says, Look, Father, I know you're really angry, but if I go down and die, can I persuade you to be gracious to these sinful people? That's not how it happens at all. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit all desire the salvation of God's people. God the Father is Saviour as God the Son and God the Holy Spirit is Saviour. Here Jude is making that point to the only God, the one God who is Saviour. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Through Jesus Christ, he says, our Lord, we come to God only through him. Yes, Jesus is our way of access to the Father. But not so that the Father is sort of somehow less convinced by the whole thing than Jesus is. Jesus is Saviour as our access to God the Father, who is also Saviour. And then we get these great uh, ascriptions in the very last part of this verse. To God be glory, majesty, dominion and authority. To God be glory. I wonder, so a thought in your mind. One of the things that underlies what Jude is saying here is this. For God to be God and God to be glorious, one and the same thing. Systematic theologians talk about the doctrine of divine simplicity and it all sounds terribly abstract. But what it does is it safeguards the idea that for God to be God... And for God to be glorious are one and the same thing. Let me use an example to sort of explain this by way of contrast. One of my hobbies is I love books on Napoleon. Anything I can get on Napoleon, I'll read. My wife says to me, do you really need to read you know, the 15th biography of Napoleon? I say, yes, because he's fascinating. Napoleon, once he was a corporal. Then he became a glorious emperor. And finally, after a crushing defeat, he became a prisoner. There were times when Napoleon was glorious. But for Napoleon to be glorious and for Napoleon to be Napoleon, two separate things. He was always Napoleon. He was only glorious for a period of time. For God to be God and for God to be glorious, one and the same thing. One and the same thing. For God to be God and for God to be majestic. For him to have majesty. It's one and the same thing. You cannot think of God without him being majestic. For God to be God and for God to have dominion. 
One and the same thing. For God to be God is for God to be sovereign. To deny God's sovereignty is to deny God. For God to be God and for God to have authority. One and the same thing. For God to be the great authority and for God to be God. One and the same thing. You cannot separate them out. He is always glorious, always majestic, always sovereign. He always has authority. As Jude says, before all time and now and forevermore. There is the doctrine of divine simplicity for you. Or just put more simply, there is the doctrine of God's gloriousness laid out for us in this spectacular way. Notice again then that the content of praise and the foundation of praise are actually the same thing. God is the reason we worship and God is the content of our worship. Worship is ascribing back to God those things that are true of him. That's all that worship is. And I think perhaps we could save ourselves a lot of heartache on worship discussions if we held that at the centre. Worship is not about us. It's about God, who he is and what he's done, and us singing that back to him in praise. And that brings me to the the application. What is the application? How does Jude apply all of this great teaching? One word. Amen. Let it be. So let it be. That is the word by which Jude makes his theology personal to himself. And by which he makes it personal to those to whom he's writing. There have been many negative things said in this letter. Many warnings. Stern warnings. Many stiff commands given. But the culminating moment is this. We worship a God who is able to accomplish all of these things in us. For he is glorious and sovereign and has dominion. And all the people said, Amen.